Hi, everyone. Anne Hawley here. Before we get started on today's episode, I want to let listeners know about StoryGrid Live, a gathering of writers serious about the craft of story, happening September 13th and 14th, 2019, in Nashville, Tennessee. StoryGrid has grown into a movement followed by tens of thousands of writers from all over the globe who are serious about their craft. This weekend event will be full of information, inspiration, and expertise, along with some food, fun, and nerdery with your fellow StoryGridders. StoryGrid Live 2019 is the place to be for writers looking to deepen and grow their expertise in the craft of storytelling. It's time to step out of your routine to spend two days alongside other writers and storytellers like you. This is a chance to not only learn, but to connect with other amazing writers. Sean Coyne and Tim Grawl will be presenting, along with special guest Stephen Pressfield. All the roundtablers will be there, too, and we hope to see you. Find out more at storygrid.com live. That's storygrid.com live. And now, on with the show. Welcome to the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable Podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer following the StoryGrid method developed by Sean Coyne, an editor with over 25 years experience. My name is Anne Hawley and I'll be moderating the roundtable today. Here with me are three of the four of my fellow roundtablers, Valerie Francis, Jari Bolander, and Leslie Watts. Kim is away this week on a big adventure. Each week, one of us pitches a film as an example of a significant story principle. The rest of us explore different aspects of the story so that we can all understand it better. Well, this week, Leslie pitched Deep Impact as part of her season five look at action stories with an epic scope. This film, which came out a couple of months earlier in 1998 than the other blockbuster about giant space rocks hitting the earth, was directed by Mimi Letter from a screenplay by Bruce Joel Rubin and Michael Tolkien. The other one was Armageddon, in case you're wondering. This film was rated PG-13 for some pretty intense, massive disaster scenes and some minor strong language. It's possible that you'll hear a bit of strong language from us as we discuss the various problems in this problematic movie. Leslie's going to start us off with the genre and a brief summary of the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff with variations to orient us to the story. Leslie, have at it. Okay. The external genre for this story is action-adventure, and we've got a doomsday plot. The internal, I would say, is worldview education, and it's a sort of mini-plot. Now, I'm focusing on the action story for the summaries, uh, but we're going to get into some of the problems with that, and in the show notes, you'll find my notes about the education mini-plot, as well as the complete editor's six core questions. So, the beginning hook. Leo and Sarah discover a comet that Dr. Wolf determines is heading toward Earth. But when President Beck learns that the comet will cause an extinction-level event, he must decide, do we focus our efforts on saving some or saving everyone? He decides to attempt to save everyone and works in secret with the Russian government to divert the comet and is forced to reveal this when Jenny Lerner stumbles upon the story. In the middle build, the Messiah departs on its mission, and after a series of setbacks, the warheads are planted within the comet. 
But when the explosion breaks the comet in two chunks, both of which are still heading toward Earth, Beck must decide whether to devote resources to a last-ditch effort to divert the comets with Titan missiles or focus exclusively on getting the people selected for preservation to the Ark. He decides to try the missiles and move ahead with plans to move the selected people to the Ark. In the ending payoff, the missiles fail to change the course of the comet, and the plan to save one million people is put into effect in the U.S. But when the crew of the Messiah realizes they might have time to destroy the bigger comet, they must decide whether to sacrifice their lives on the chance they can prevent the large comet from hitting the Earth or continue back to Earth. They make the sacrifice, which eliminates the ELE threat saving humanity so they can rebuild. Thanks, Leslie. You know, I was both bored and annoyed by the first half of this movie, though I will admit that by the second half, I did get more engaged as the ticking clock counted down to the extinction of life on Earth. I know you have a lot to say about how an action story with an epic scope and a doomsday plot could be so scattered, so grace us with your insights, please. Okay, I'll do my best. My goal this season is to look at action stories with an epic scope because if you want to write a story that's complex with lots of moving parts, it's useful to study the ones that meet your criteria. Last time I looked at Thor Ragnarok, an episode in a much larger story universe with a large cast of characters, existential threats, and a wide landscape. For this episode, I pitched Deep Impact, which is a standalone story that includes the large cast of characters dealing with an existential threat on a wide landscape. Now, as a story, Deep Impact just doesn't work as well as Thor Ragnarok, but it serves as a cautionary example, showing us the pitfalls we face when we want to tell a complex story, whether that's an action story or something else. Now, Deep Impact does sell itself as an action story, but key events about dealing with the threat happen off stage. Now, that can mean that the story is muddled or that there's more going on here than a straight action story or both. Now, the beginning hook shows us how ordinary people from multiple levels of society are left out of the decisions about threats that affect more than a few people. You might notice how the president's aide so casually suggests that they hold Lerner to keep her from revealing what she knows. And the president says, it might seem that we have each other over the same barrel, Ms. Lerner, but it just seems that way. Now, I can't pull that off the way Morgan Freeman did, but you get the impact that he's telling her she has no power. Everything about that scene suggests just that. And I suspect this was the real point of the story. What do ordinary people do in the face of existential threats? And that's a very interesting approach to take. And you can include several different ideas and angles within one story, but it's vital to focus on one primary storyline first. Now, as Anne mentioned, this story was released within two months of Armageddon. That's another disaster film with another large object, an asteroid in that case, hurtling toward Earth. We follow the team of heroes almost exclusively. 
So like Thor Ragnarok, Armageddon is primarily about two levels of conflict, the villain and typical interpersonal conflicts that arise when you're trying to defeat the villain. So I want to say hat tip to my actions genre study group for helping me understand what's really happening here generally and to StoryGrid certified editor Melanie Nauman specifically for the clue that the title has two meanings. The comet has a deep impact on the people, but the people have a deep impact in how they show up in a crisis. Now, Deep Impact should have been a great film. It explores societal conflict, which is important because not all solutions work for all levels of society. And it also explores inner conflict because how we see a problem and where we sit in relation to the people in power changes what we do. Also, members of the media have to decide what is appropriate to reveal and when. And individuals have to cope with daily life and its challenges in the backdrop of a crisis that might end the world. These are important, big questions in the 21st century. Do you think that the media would actually keep this kind of story a secret? Yeah, not necessarily. But I suspect that deals similar to the one struck here between Lerner and Beck do happen, where a member of the media decides to wait to go public in exchange for a scoop or other privileges. I think the bottom line here is that the execution of the ideas isn't great. But of course, studying stories that don't quite work is very instructive. In particular, I want to look at some of the pitfalls that may arise when we attempt to write a story like this. Understanding these problems can help us avoid them. So first and foremost, there's the global story spine. On the surface, the story is about an existential threat. It's an action story, but as I mentioned, it really seems to be about how individuals rise to the challenge and express their gifts. After all, the tagline on the film poster is, Oceans Rise, Cities Fall, Hope Survives. But neither storyline really works. As I said a moment ago, in the beginning hook and middle build, the main conflict about what to do about the threat happens off stage. We learn about the president's decisions in press conferences. Now that suggests the story then is about how ordinary people respond or how they deal with this kind of threat, especially when they don't have power to make the decisions about the macro plan. But this aspect of the story isn't well developed, and as Valerie will explain in a moment, it's hard to empathize with these characters, even though they're facing some really big stuff. There is some real potential with the ingredients of this story to write something complex that works and has a deep impact. But if you want to do that, you need to pick what your story is really about, then set up the 15 key scenes, that is the global story spine, to tell that story well, and then add the subordinate plots. Now, another problem that you couldn't have missed with this story is that there are quite a few plot holes. Now, this is not hard science fiction, which relies on factual accuracy and logic. 
we're not looking at a story like The Martian here, so don't judge it by that standard. But even by this less rigorous standard, the film requires some hefty suspension of disbelief. There are plenty of problematic elements that pulled me out of the story. For example, amateur astronomers do find new objects in the sky and occasionally score significant finds, but it seems like a stretch that a comet so close wasn't found by one of the many professional or academic observatories around the world. And for that matter, it seems quite odd that no one else in the world spotted this between the time when Leo and Sarah find it and when President Beck announces its existence to the world. But the plot hole that's big enough to drive a truck through involves the demise of Dr. Wolf. A collision with a semi turns Wolf's vehicle into a fiery ball tumbling down the side of a mountain. But somehow, news of the comet with the name Wolf Biederman attached, makes its way to the proper authorities. I mean, that 3 by 5 floppy in the envelope in the Jeep burned up too, didn't it? Well, disaster films often include cheesy moments and plot holes, you know, scenes where the audience thinks, yeah, right. And in a way, that's part of the fun of these stories. We get a relief from the tension that's caused by the doom the characters face. You can get away with these moments when the global story spine is solid and when narrative drive pulls the reader into the next story moment right away. Now, I want to get into what Kim calls the big meta why. Execution aside, stories like Deep Impact matter because they provide examples of individuals who step up, do the right thing, and make personal sacrifices for the good of others, even if they aren't involved in the macro decisions to resolve the major conflict in the story. We can't all be the hero, but we can do the right thing. So you can write action stories with no internal genre. You can write action stories with an internal genre for the heroes. And you can write action stories that focus on how people make sense of the external threat and what they decide to do about it. But you must make a choice if you want the best shot at writing a story that works. What do you want to dramatize? What's your primary message? So if we compare Thor Ragnarok with Deep Impact, again, we have two stories dealing with existential threats. The vast majority of people at risk, that is, the victims, can do little to impact their fate. The power divide between the heroes and the villains is large, but the power divide between the victims and the villain is, well, if you'll forgive the term, astronomical. The heroes in Thor Ragnarok, Thor, Valkyrie, Banner, Heimdall, and even Loki make decisions on behalf of the Asgardians. The point of view follows these heroes with occasional shots of frightened and disempowered citizens. Now that's one way to present a story of existential threat. And that's what the filmmakers did in that case. But another way, as I've already talked about, is to focus on the ordinary citizens. 
we can shine a light on individuals and how they see what's happening, what it means to them, and what they consequently do about it. Now, this might seem like a small matter, but as Malcolm Gladwell showed us in The Tipping Point, little changes have big effects, and that epidemics, whether we're talking about diseases or ideas, can rise or fall in one dramatic moment. Now, this reminds me of Stephen Pressfield's novel about the Battle of Thermopylae, Gates of Fire. The Spartans face a huge army coming to wipe them out. Imminent death is certain. Individual Spartans, though, both leaders and common soldiers, speak up about how they should approach the threat. Individually and collectively, they decided that the way to face the threat was to make their deaths mean something. So by framing the situation in this way, they fought fiercely and bought time for the other Greek cities to mount a defense. That was the plan on the macro level. Now on the micro level, they focused on keeping their fellow soldiers alive. Now, this story fits squarely within the war genre. It's not action, but you see the parallels between Gates of Fire and Deep Impact because both attempt to show us the story from different levels of society. Now, Pressfield nails the global war story in Gates of Fire, which means that the story can support exploration of these deeper questions. And that brings me back to the key takeaway here. Get clear about the story you want to write. There are so many decisions you have to make. Content genre, point of view, style, sales category, and all of those are just the macro ones. Make sure that these practical decisions are aligned with and support the story you really want to tell. I am so glad you were on the case, Leslie, because I really wasn't able to be this week. I kind of flaked off this week. Your usual level of clarity, which I always admire, on the fundamental ins and outs of what makes a story either work or pop springs out all over the place, is always a goldmine for writers of any genre. The show notes, which have a whole lot more in them, are a rich resource, so everybody should really go look at those. Before we move on to Jari and the love story subplot, I just want to say a couple of words about the mini plot structure in this movie. Our basic story grid guidelines state that an action story is always an arch plot with a single main protagonist. And here we have three mini plots, three main mini plots. We have the story of Jenny, the reporter, and her family and her work situation. We have Leo Biederman, the young uh, astronomer played by Frodo, and his love story. And we have Spurgeon, the old astronaut, and his team of young space cowboys. Now, the president and his team don't really constitute a mini plot because, as Leslie has pointed out, most of his story happens off screen and is revealed in press releases. Now, everyone was more or less heroic or brave or self-sacrificing, but no one hero led them all. That, to me, was what made it a mini-plot. The astronauts literally sacrificed their lives to save all of humankind, all life on Earth, and yet the story doesn't revolve around them. Remember that other giant space rock hitting Earth story, Armageddon, it had a far greater, dare I say it, impact that year uh, because it was absolutely clear who we were rooting for. On the other hand, as Valerie's going to cover in a little bit, this attempt to make a mini-plot disaster story into an epic action story did give me more time to feel a wider range of emotions, watching such a variety of characters face their doom. 
there was pathos and sorrow and a win but lose ending that was in some ways more satisfying to me than the absolute win you get in more typical action stories. As I recall back in the day when both of these movies were released and I saw them both, I went away thinking that Deep Impact was actually the better movie. I have since changed my mind a little bit. I'm going to pass the mic to Jari now, who's got a few things to tell us about the love story subplot. So, Jari. Thanks, Anne. Among this most spectacular backdrop of all things 90s, we have the budding love between Leo and Sarah. This love subplot does not show up in earnest until after the midpoint shift, which is when the Messiah fails its mission. And really, it's Leo offering to marry Sarah more out of naive heroism than really out of love. You see a little bit of the budding love or puppy love before when they hold each other's hands, but this is where it really gets real. And this confession of love scene, you know, because you need one of those, it just doesn't work for me at all. Clearly, they're in puppy love, but I don't think it's a let's get married kind of love. And then the montage that follows this scene, and it's at about an hour 12 and ends around an hour 14, includes Leo and Sarah getting married among the chaos, carnage, and reflection and preparation for this the end that's going to come. And, you know, frankly, it fell flat. The lovers break up scene, or rather our separated scene, is also a little unsatisfying since Leo leaves with his family, abandons Sarah. And then equally odd is when he goes back for her on his bike. You know, then the lovers reunite scene with Leo driving the motorcycle through the traffic and the, the tearful scene when they take the baby and go to high ground. It all happens so fast. It just doesn't seem believable to me. Yeah, Jerry, I can see where you're coming from. And I just want to pause here for a second to point out that this particular moment is one of the few that actually generates empathy. And I'm going to talk more about that in a minute. But like you said, here in this scene, we're focused on Sarah's mom, who is desperately handing one of her children over to another because Sarah's her child, but she also has a newborn. And she's handing the baby over to Sarah in the hope that both of her children might survive. So here in a scene that's supposed to be about Leo and Sarah, our attention is really drawn toward the crisis of a minor character. You're right. It does have some empathy. I mean, I have a lot more empathy for the mom than I do for Sarah and Leo. It, but I don't really feel the love between them. I wanted to feel something for them, but I just can't. All of the obligatory scenes and conventions are present, but they're weak. There's the lover's triangle at the beginning. It's done you know, right up front with Sarah going to something or other with another boy and for example, the lovers breakup scene could have been done earlier, even been more dramatic, like putting them on different buses and then having one break down so that, you know, they have to make a decision, which is more believable. Anything else from what they did, because that, that scene was kind of lame. There is some redeeming love in this movie, and it's a paternal love between Jason and Jenny. Probably the most touching scene is when Jenny comes back to tell her father that she loves him. The scene is at around an hour 42, 52. Jenny visits her father at the beach, and we all know what the deep impact's going to do to anyone near the coast to be with him. And they both confess to each other past transgressions and that they miss each other. And I, th I think that beats a good one to study in terms of the reconciliation between a father and a daughter before their demise. I don't know where else you'd want to use this, but you know, it has the right amount of humor and it's done well. And then the massive wave comes crashing in. And then the last scene you see is Jenny says, daddy. And I think that says it all. 
But I think the real tearjerker here, and I mean, I cried in it, is the hero say farewell scene, which seems to be a trope for these kind of movies. It's between an hour 47 and an hour 48 in the movie, where some of the crew of the Messiah say goodbye to their families before they go on the suicide mission, right, to explode the wolf comet, because we all know that's the only way the world's going to survive. I mean, this could have been an even better scene, but the cuts back and forth between the people running for their lives and the touching moments moments, excuse me, just kind of gave it this lack of continuity. It made it a little distracting. So what can you learn from this movie as a writer in terms of love subplots? Is that if you're going to do this kind of puppy love turn serious in a movie like this, I think you need to make it a little more believable. I think you need to add something to make the viewer reader care a little bit more. Maybe sticking to a couple of them and just flesh them out. And I think everyone kind of got it when they said there's like too much going on and it'd be great to just follow kind of one arc so that you can kind of get more into it this movie. Thanks, Jari. Now, Valerie's got a nuclear payload. Sorry, I just couldn't raise it. <laughs> Valerie's got a nuclear payload of insights about one of her specialties <laughs> this season, empathy. So Valerie, blow us away. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> I will do my best. <laughs> I will do my best. Okay, so so I'm continuing my study on empathy and what it is and how we create it. As I mentioned in the last couple of episodes, empathy for the protagonist is essential. If the reader doesn't relate to the hero on some level, then she won't engage with the story. She won't care about the hero or whether he gets what he wants and needs. Now, in a mini plot story like Deep Impact, that means connecting to the protagonist of each storyline. And for writers, seriously, this is no small task. Sean explained that we can create empathy by following the heroic journey on the macro level and by clearly articulating the objects of desire on the micro level. As I continue to study into this a little deeper, I'm discovering that a number of other storytelling experts have suggested exactly the same thing, although. Granted, they're talking about it in slightly different terms. For example, John Truby says that getting an audience to care about a character comes down to, quote, the fundamental weakness of the character and the character's goal in the story, end quote. He goes on to say that the weakness is the need of the character. And I'm going to quote him again. In other words, what is that personal problem inside that is hurting the hero in such a fundamental way that it's ruining their life? It's very deep. And the entire story is going to play out the solving of that problem. The way they're going to solve that problem is by going after a particular goal. They don't know that at the beginning, that by going after this goal, they will eventually deal with their great internal weakness, but if the story is good, that's exactly how it will work, end quote. So, I mean, what, what is he talking about there? Objects of desire, right? This is exactly what Sean has been telling us about. Now, on YouTube, you can find a great series of interviews with John Truby, and I'm just going to, in the show notes, put a link to the interview where he talks about empathy. Okay, moving on. Last week, I mentioned that Robert McKee suggests we identify a core of goodness in the character, that is, his humanity, which, again, is another way of talking about the subconscious need. I haven't had a chance to work my way through all of the masterclass classes yet, but I do know that David Baldacci, Neil Gaiman, Judy Bloom, Aaron Sorkin, and Margaret Atwood 
all touch on this same point. In some form or another, everyone is saying that we don't care about a character because of how she looks or what she wears. We care about her because of who she is deep down. All right, this brings me to deep impact. Except for a couple of small moments in the film, honestly, I had trouble empathizing with the characters. I had very little emotional connection to any of the storylines, and I think there's a few reasons for this. First of all, we have to acknowledge that empathy is a subjective thing. I can empathize with a character that someone else can't relate to at all, and that's perfectly fine, but here I think there's more to it than that, and I have a couple of ideas as to where Deep Impact may have missed opportunities to generate empathy. Let's look at the recommendations we have from the pros so far. Well, we can rule out the heroic journey for help with empathy on the macro level because this story is a mini plot. This means that the filmmakers really have to nail the objects of desire for each of the main characters we follow, and unfortunately they don't. Here's just a couple of examples. For Leo, what he wants is a relationship with Sarah. His need... Well, I mean, you know, Sean uses the word squishy, but I think squishy is being generous here. I, I don't really see that there's a much of a need here. Maybe he needs to learn to put Sarah ahead of himself. I, don't, I feel like I'm stretching that really far. So while his want is obvious, his need is less so. I'm not sure how running back to get Sarah articulates his need if it is indeed that he has to put himself ahead of Sarah. The chance of him finding her is slim, and he still can't save the family, so really it's just a repeat of what we saw earlier. When it comes to Jenny, she wants to move up the corporate ladder, but she needs to forgive her father. And while she gets both of these objects of desire, one has nothing to do with the other. They're not linked. Truby mentioned in the quote that I read a minute ago, and Sean goes into this in greater detail in the story grid, in order to get the want, they have to first get the need. And in any story, a character, for it to be satisfying, a character actually doesn't even have to get what they want, but they do have to get what they need. And Neil Gaiman talks about that quite a bit in his masterclass, which if you haven't yet gotten it, you should get it as soon as you finish listening to this podcast. <laughs> and then we have the president. I was really liked what Leslie had to say about the president because I grappled with this character quite a bit. Yes, he wants to protect the people of America, but I really couldn't find much of a need, a subconscious need for him. And that means there isn't much of an internal arc. Now, as Leslie mentioned, a lot of his story happens off screen, and maybe that's what I was picking up on. But it led me to a really interesting question, and that's this. Is it possible to create empathy for a protagonist that doesn't arc? I think the answer is yes. I mean, there's a lot of people who are rooting for James Bond, right? And he doesn't have much of an arc to talk about, let's be honest. But I don't know for sure. To find the answer to that question, I'd have to study a whole bunch of examples and look for common patterns to figure out whether this is true or not. But I'm happy that for now I've discovered a new question and a new avenue that I can investigate with respect to empathy. Finally, we have the crew of the Messiah. They want to destroy the comet to save the Earth, and they need to be completely selfless. Here, the crew's wants and needs, as a group, are clearly defined. It's by realizing their subconscious need that they get their conscious want. So clearly there's a problem with how the objects of desire have been articulated, but there's even more to Deep Impact's troubles. Leslie has already alluded to many plot holes and holy Hannah, there are a lot. 
<laughs> Suspension of disbelief is one thing, but insulting the reader's intelligence, or in this case, the viewer's intelligence, is another thing altogether. There were several times in the beginning hook when I thought, oh, come on, you got to be kidding me. You know, never before has a rookie journalist broken a story of such global importance so easily. Never before has the leader of a country so quickly given up secrets so readily. <laughs> the president assumed Jenny had the full scoop. She didn't. She didn't have a clue what was going on. But you know how she figured it out? She went on the internet. Oh, <laughs> I just had to accept really quickly that this script was held together with scotch tape and I just kept moving forward. To be fair, Valerie, in 1990-whatever, the internet was kind of magical. Well, <laughs> okay, I will give that one to you, Anne, but geez, I'm stretching. I'm feeling generous. So the whole reason I'm bringing this up is not to be unduly harsh or critical, but to highlight the fact that as storytellers, what we are doing is creating an illusion. All of the tools in our toolbox exist to help us develop that illusion and anything, and I mean anything, that breaks the spell and brings the reader out of that imaginary world is a problem. Large, persistent holes will most definitely destroy the illusion. Then there's the sheer scope of the film, and we already alluded to this already. I suspect that the story is simply too big for the two-hour format. This is exactly the problem we saw with Jupiter Ascending. There isn't enough time to follow all these people who are dealing with massive issues. The whole premise of the film is hard to relate to. I mean, I've never had to consider what I would do in the event of Armageddon. A snowstorm, maybe, but not Armageddon. And I can't relate to that particular problem, and I think it's a mistake to try to get a reader to tackle this kind of issue on any real sort of level. What I believe works best is to have the reader connect with the crisis of each individual story within this world. Extinction of the planet is the premise, but that's not the issues that the characters are dealing with. Not really. Leo is dealing with the loss of his beloved. Jenny has abandonment issues. The president is, ironically, powerless to help the people he has sworn to protect. And the crew of the Messiah must sacrifice themselves for the greater good. Those are the points that an audience can connect to. Unfortunately, none of them has time to fully develop. And as Jory has already said, it's hard to view Leo and Sarah's love story as anything more than a high school crush. Sure, I can understand the reason behind the marriage, but the whole thing falls flat. Jenny is entirely focused on her want, so much so that when she gives up her seat on the helicopter and goes to be with her father, it doesn't quite ring true. Taking the child from her colleague and getting on the helicopter herself seemed perfectly in character, but it surprised me that she gave up her seat to let her colleague get on the helicopter with her child. The president, again, he's a bit of a conundrum for me. I'm not sure he really does anything more than move the plot along. And again, maybe that's because most of his story happens off screen. I see him more as a herald in this massive story than a character with his own storyline. Once he delivers the catastrophic news that <laughs> we're all doomed, the sky is falling, he walks off stage. He just walks out of his office. Now, presumably, that's to go to his own protective bunker. What he's doing there, effectively, is abandoning the people he is supposed to protect. Now, either he's completely cold-hearted, which I don't think is the case or the intention here, or he's 
got to somehow find a way to continue leading the people while dealing with his feelings of failure. The whole story, this whole film of deep impact could easily have focused on this one particular character dealing with this one particular need. Valerie, here's an interesting thought that I had based on what you just said about the president. Yes, he is a Harold character. I think that's a really good point. And most of what he does in the story is similar to what's done with news reports on the TV, right? It's a press conference and there's a person there. But in effect, the president is like an epistolary device. He just delivers the story of what's already happened. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. Of all the storylines, the one I connected to the most was the crew of the Messiah. It wasn't until I sat down to articulate the objects of desire that I began to see why. And it's funny that Leslie brought up the Martian earlier, because that's exactly the story that was running through my mind when I watched these sequences. But again, the audience didn't get a chance to see the relationship between the crew members fully develop. And in my opinion, that destroyed any chance for empathy to take hold as it could have. The potential was there, though. For example, when Gus Partenza was lost, I admit I had to pause the movie and check to see which character he was. And the crew didn't spend any more time thinking about him than I did. Well, <laughs> Gus floats off into space and, <laughs> and the story keeps going. The friendship between Fish and Oren definitely had the most emotional impact. But I think that was due to Robert Duvall's performance rather than the writing. And as novelists, all we have is the written word. As I was watching Deep Impact, I kept thinking about Love Actually, which we studied in season four. Love Actually has multiple storylines because it's also a mini plot, but the objects of desire for each of those characters is very clearly developed. And as a result, the audience is emotionally engaged with each and every storyline. I can't even think about Emma Thompson's bedroom scene without tearing up. <laughs> yeah, Love Actually really was full of of good things. And I recommend people go back and re-listen to our episode on that because it does cover mini plot structure in quite a bit of detail. Now, I just wanted to add one thing, Valerie, as to those huge existential questions that are hard for individuals to relate to, just this personal note here. I live on the Cascadian subduction zone. So for me, whatever power this movie actually had did lie in posing that huge existential question. How would I personally face my certain death given time to consider it? Now, not that there's going to be any warning for the magnitude nine earthquake that we're sitting on top of, but it is something that I think about. Most of us like to believe, I think, that we'd be brave and self-sacrificing in such a dire situation. And I think that's a lot of what action stories are for, to teach us to think about those things uh, in general. But most of us would also like to imagine that when some inevitable doom is imminent and we know it as it becomes in this film, we would face it with whatever we deem to be dignity. And that may be what these doomsday stories are for. And that's why I really liked the little tiny role that Vanessa Redgrave had in here as Jenny's mother and how she faces and creates actually her own death with dignity. So while this story was remarkably flawed and deserving, I think, of its Metacritic score of 40, I did find some value and some emotion and quite a bit of catharsis in it by the end because of the mini plot view of these various characters. Aha. Aha, this is exactly what I'm talking about. The, oh, thing you <laughs> the thing you reacted to was very personal, considering and facing your own death. And although I didn't mention it above, I mean, this is exactly what, as you said, Vanessa Redgrave's character, Robin Lerner, is dealing with. Her scenes are some of the most poignant, and her story is one of the most relatable. It's not one of the bigger ones in the story, but 
she creates a feeling of empathy. What she's dealing with is betrayal because her husband has left her and clearly it's been years and she still hasn't gotten over it and facing her own death with dignity. And that can happen in any scenario, right? It could be a, a terminal illness or anything. I think that the fact that a comet is coming to the earth is more the setting than the thing that generates the empathy. I think if the film had followed fewer storylines, then it would have had time to develop them in a more satisfying way. Any of these storylines had the potential for huge emotional impact. And of course, empathy isn't about whether the audience has had exactly the same experience as the character. It's whether we can relate to the emotions of the characters. Is there a point of commonality or humanity that we recognize? And as Leslie and Jari have already said, I also think that Deep Impact was simply trying to do too much. It tried to cover too broad a canvas in too little time. And as a result, none of the stories were as rich as they could have been. Imagine this same story told as, as a long form television show like Breaking Bad or as a miniseries like Good Omens. So as novelists, there's a huge lesson here for us. If we have a story of epic proportions, I believe we would be wise to consider either a series of novels or finding a specific relatable human moment to build the story around. Thank you, Valerie. That really helped me sort out some of my mixed, very mixed feelings about this strange movie. <laughs> To wind up the episode, we take questions from our listeners, and this week's question is from Kim, who dropped this on us and ran off on vacation, leaving us to answer it without her. Hey, Kim Kessler here. So I'm out of town this week, but I wanted to take the opportunity to leave a question. As a StoryGrid editor, I can see the global movements for my client's story and how the scenes fit together in the story you know, fairly easily, or at least I can get to the bottom of it using our triple threat of StoryGrid tools, my client's intention and reason for telling the story, and my own story intuition. But when using StoryGrid tools to analyze and revise my own novel, I admittedly keep getting stuck. So here's my question. Since the spreadsheet tracks the turning point for each scene, it seems presumable that a story could technically have scenes that work, aka turn, but not necessarily be great scenes, you know, with all five commandments that are hitting on all cylinders. And they might not necessarily contribute to the story. If the 15 core scenes of the Fool's Cap track with the global story, how do I ensure that the other 45 scenes are really doing their job? I mean, especially if we're writing a story that's not a straight arch plot. I guess what I'm really asking is, how can I look at my scenes to ensure that the scene is A, worth having in the novel and not a darling that I should cut, and B, that it's good enough and complete enough and I can call this thing done? Thanks so much. Great question, Kim. <laughs> so Leslie's going to take that for us. Thanks, Kim. Um, I agree. This is an excellent question. Of course, you can have scenes that work ones that turn and they are structured according to the five commandments that don't really work well in the context of the story. We see that in deep impact, I think. But how can you tell? This is a big question and we could devote multiple episodes of the podcast to it, but I'll share an analogy that helps me when I'm thinking about this problem. I think of scenes in a story as evidence in a criminal trial where the prosecution must prove certain objective facts, but can also prove other facts that support the required ones. 
For example, in a burglary case, the state must prove the defendant entered a building without permission with the intent to commit an offense, like theft or assault. Now, if the state can't prove those facts as a matter of law, there should be no conviction. So we think of those necessary facts as both the obligatory scenes and the 15 key scenes. If you don't have them, or if they don't turn on the global life value, you have a collection of scenes, but not a story that works. So the prosecution in our hypothetical trial can admit evidence of other facts. For example, a prior conviction for a substantially similar offense evidence of motive, or actions after the offense that tend to support the defendant's guilt. Now, these specific facts, again, are not required, but they are relevant to the question of guilt. You can think of these as the other 45 scenes in your novel. You can determine relevance by how the story event in the scene affects the global life value. Now back again to our trial, the state is not permitted to introduce evidence that's not relevant to the question of guilt, at least most of the time. For example, evidence that the defendant regularly drives his car over the speed limit says something about their character, but it's unlikely to be relevant in a trial for burglary. Showing that the defendant was obsessed with a certain author is relevant to their motive for breaking into an antique bookstore with the intent to steal a first edition by that author. Now, a trial judge deciding whether to admit the evidence should ask if the fact supported tends to support or undermine the defendant's guilt. So in the context of your story, again, think about whether each scene is moving the global life value related to the central conflict, or if it moves the life value of a subplot that affects the global life value in some way. Obviously, this is a less objective standard than you would use for the 15 key scenes, so it is squishier. When you make this assessment, you do so from your role as the creator of the story, though, knowing how it all works, not from the perspective of the reader who is missing key facts. What you can do is, for every scene, ask yourself, what does this mean for the global story, and how can I make it mean more and have a greater impact on moving the life value? I love this criminal trial analogy, Leslie. That is a real eye-opener, that you're trying to prove your case. I just... It seems so straightforward. I don't know, because I'm not a lawyer, I didn't think of it, but that's great. I just wanted to add one other thing from a more specifically story grid perspective. When you think about the 15 key scenes, they include inciting incident, turning point, right? Turning point, progressive complication, crisis, climax, and resolution times three, a set of those five for each of the three acts. And what isn't in that list? Progressive complications, And to my mind, many of the remaining 45 scenes, we use the number 60 as kind of an arbitrary measure, are progressive complications. And some of them can also be simply transitions. We're studying this in the Masterwork Experiment right now, looking at Annie Prue's Brokeback Mountain. And quite a number of her very spare 11,500 words are devoted 
to showing the passage of time, changing the setting, and so forth. And that's perfectly okay, too. You don't want to depend heavily on that because those aren't plot developments, but we do need some of them in a story of 60 scenes. So that might be another part of the answer to the question. If you have a question about action stories with an epic scope or any other story principle, you can ask it on Twitter at StoryGridRT, or better still, by going to storygrid.com slash resources, clicking on Editor Roundtable Podcast, and leaving us a voice message just like Kim did, which we really like. That wraps it up for this week, everybody. Great discussion. Thank you, Jari, Leslie, and Valerie for excellent editorial insights into Deep Impact. We hope our discussion has given you a better grasp of how to or how not to incorporate multiple plot lines into your action stories. You can find links and additional material in the show notes at storygrid.com. And if you want to connect with one of us directly, links to our websites can also be found in the show notes. To support the show, leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. Join us next time as Valerie takes us on another psychological thrill ride with the girl on the train. Why not give it a look during the week and follow along with us? Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you.